Father, thank you that we can study a topic so exciting, so moving as the Holy Spirit. Lord, we've been studying how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how to be godly adults and young people, and how we can go out and share your love and grace and power with the world. I just pray that you will now come with us and enter this room and just fill us with your love and grace. And may we, even at this conference, be spirit-filled. In Christ's name, amen. Number of questions. Practically, how do I know to, how to apply this to my life? In other words, how can I apply the concept of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit to my life? We discussed some of that. Zechariah 10, verse 1 and onward, ask the Lord for rain. The way you apply it to your life is taking the first two steps that we have been outlining in the seminar on the Holy Spirit and a lot of rain. Ask God to fill your life with his spirit. Ask him to grant to you the, that infilling. Tell him that you want an undivided heart. How can you practically apply it to your life? Set aside time every day to pray and seek God and to see him in his word and to be filled with his spirit. Secondly, ask God to give you an undivided heart. Find somebody else to pray with. You know, uh, Ellen White makes an interesting statement in the seventh volume of the Testimonies, page 21. That seventh volume of the Testimonies, page 21 and 22. She says, why do not two or three meet with God? Meet together. Why do not two or three meet together and plead with God for the salvation of some special one and then still another? So two or three people meeting together, students, youth meeting together, pleading with God. So how do you apply it? Find somebody else to pray with. Open your heart. Don't let what we have taught here from the Bible, don't let that simply uh, be casual in your life. But go back and plead with God and ask him for the Holy Spirit. Ask him to empower you. Get prayer groups going in your church, your school. Ask God to give you an undivided heart. This next question is a fascinating one. It says, should we address the Holy Spirit in our prayers and worship? Should we worship and praise and pray to the Holy Spirit? There are at least a number of questions that are very, very similar to that one question. And it is, one person put it this way. Yes, here it is. I'm not sure if I understand your answers correctly. If the Holy Spirit is one of the Godhead, why can't we pray and praise, pray to the Holy Spirit and praise the Holy Spirit um, just like we would do Jesus or God? In other words, the, the question becomes, do we praise and pray to the Holy Spirit? The issue is not whether the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead or not. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Um, that's throughout Scripture. You know, we find that um, Genesis 6 says the Holy Spirit will not always strive with man. Ephesians 4 says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But the issue is the function of the Spirit. See, if you take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8, and I just want to pause on this one a little bit. The Bible... What is the function of the Holy Spirit? The function of the Holy Spirit, as we've studied, according to John 14, 15, and 16, is to exalt Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to Jesus. What is the work of the Holy Spirit during our prayer? Now, here's what you find in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. 
Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So it is not that we are praying to the Holy Spirit. We pray through the ministry of the Spirit as the, the Spirit prompts our minds so that we know what to pray about. The Spirit takes our words and interprets them before God. So the question is function. What is the function of the Holy Spirit? The Bible does not talk about praying to the Holy Spirit. It talks rather about the Holy Spirit taking our words. And I can say, thank you, Lord, for sending the Holy Spirit as your personal emissary to warm my heart. Thank you that as I pray, I know the Holy Spirit takes my words and interprets them and places them before the throne of God. So I am praising Jesus. And that's when the Holy Spirit does his work in my heart. The greatest honor I can give to the Holy Spirit is let the Holy Spirit do the work that the Bible says he ought to give. You know, there's a lot of people that want to say, oh, praise the Spirit. Well, I praise God for giving us his Spirit. There is no difference in the Godhead, they are three separate beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember what I told you the other day, somebody said to try to understand the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their eternal nature and the Trinity is to lose your mind, but to deny the Trinity is to lose your soul. And so, you know, um, we are praying to the Father in the name of Jesus through the intercession of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that in our hearts is the personal presence of Christ, and the Holy Spirit awakens within us every desire to do right. You have no desires to do right unless the Holy Spirit awakens them. You have no desires to, 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 to exalt Jesus unless the Holy Spirit awakens them. A um, couple more questions. Somebody asked about C.S. Lewis, Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Is that acceptable reading for the Christian? Um, I don't have a reading list that I can just check off, this one's acceptable, this is not acceptable, this is acceptable. Um, there are many people that have been blessed by the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, they have been really blessed by it. It's touched their lives, it's transformed them. I don't approach it by saying this is right or this is wrong. You need to let the Holy Spirit that we've been studying about guide you. He will guide you. But I will tell you this, in my own life, I have very limited time to read. Now, maybe you have a lot of time to read, more time to read your Bible than you can possibly imagine, more time to read the writings of Ellen White. I don't approach things from right or wrong. I approach things from the standpoint of what time do I have and how do I want to allocate my time, okay? Um, next, what was the role of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost? Before Pentecost, you see, if you look at, the, ministry, if you look at the, the, the scripture this way, in the Old Testament, we see Christ concealed in the prophecies. In the Old Testament, we see Jesus foreshadowed in the Lamb. In the Old Testament, the major character on the landscape is God. Um, God is revealed through the whole Old Testament. We see him there. In the New Testament, we see Jesus revealed. In the Old Testament, he's somewhat concealed. The lamb sacrifice is pointed forward to him. He's revealed. So if you look at the Old Testament, that is largely God revealing himself. The New Testament, Jesus reveals himself. But Jesus ascends to heaven. 
Now, after Pentecost, it is the Holy Spirit that empowers believers and leads us to Christ and the kingdom. So if you're looking at it in three specific phases, you're looking at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working for salvation. Now, each one is inclusive, not exclusive. It's not that they're compartmentalized. God in the Old Testament is revealed through Christ in the New Testament. And Jesus doesn't come to now to take over the ministry of the Father, but to expand what God is like. And so you have God the Father and, and, and Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes, it is not now that we're living in the dispensation of the Spirit, so we leave God and Jesus back there someplace. Not at all, nothing like that. It is rather that the Holy Spirit comes to amplify, magnify, explain, reveal the ministry of God in the Old Testament, the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit convicted, the Spirit led men and women into truth, the Spirit strove with men and women, but it was not till after Pentecost that the Spirit was poured out in all of his fullness. And so it is not that the Spirit didn't exist before, but it's, it's like this. You can have $10 in your piggy bank in dimes when you are in the third grade you can have a little more money when you are in academy, none when you're in college, no. Um, <laughs> but the, you get a job, and it's not you didn't have any money in before, but a check begins to flow, and that's pretty nice. The Holy Spirit was, has always been present, but the spigot and the water coming out was turned on at Pentecost, and God gave us much more. Um, okay. Yeah, this question I answered yesterday. Here's another question about 1 Corinthians 14. It says, if in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, 27, 28, Paul's talking about the gift of tongues, and that's languages, why did they need an interpreter back there? Doesn't that defeat the purpose of the gift? Here's what was going on in 1 Corinthians 14. We explained it yesterday. 1 Corinthians 14 was Paul's headache church. It was really a problem for Paul. And we went over that verse by verse yesterday. But it was a problem because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, they were arguing, they were debating. There was this big strife in the church. There was conflict. One said, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. There was division, there was egotism, there was pride. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, there's immorality right in the Corinthian church. They're not dealing with it. There's sexual immorality, there's incest. You come to 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8, they're suing one another, they're taking one another to courts of law, the church is being embarrassed before the Corinthian society. You look there, they're abusing the Lord's Supper, even at the Lord's Supper, they bring their own meals and some would eat in one place and some would eat in another. So it's a, it's a church of selfish exhibitionism. They're abusing the gifts of the Spirit. They're saying, I'm the greatest. They're striving for leadership. They have put emphasis on the external and not the internal and the manifestation of God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 14, you have a cosmopolitan church. The true gifts of the Holy Spirit are being abused. They're not the false gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 14, there'll be times that a person stands up and speaks a real language that nobody in the congregation knows. It's, he has the gift of that language that God gave him in the international cosmopolitan city of Corinth to preach the gospel. But in the church, nobody knows it. So Paul says, if there is not an interpreter present, 
don't use it because it's not edifying the church. The purpose of the, of the gift of tongues, real language, is to bless the church. Um, I promised you that I would look for you. Incidentally, you remember we studied yesterday that God gave four criteria for the gift of tongues. One is we understood from Acts 2, 10, and 19 that we studied really in detail that the gift of tongues is a real language. When we looked at 1 Corinthians 4, to communicate the gospel or to authenticate the gospel. When we looked at 1 Corinthians 14, we studied yesterday the fact that this gift of tongues was being abused. It was still a real language, and Paul gave criteria for Number one, if you speak in tongues, they're only one person at a time. All this business of everybody speaking, no. And it's tongues are languages. So if you speak in a foreign language in the church one at a time, no more than two or three people at any service, there has to be an interpreter. And four, no women can speak in church in tongues. That's what he's talking about. We showed that from 1 Corinthians 14. We explained the reason for that is that at the pagan temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, there were a thousand immoral pagan prostitutes that were part of the worship service that offered sexual favors to those that came. It was a horrible situation. And there was ecstatic utterance in that pagan temple. Paul said, if you come into the Christian church and everybody's babbling in this kind of ecstatic utterance, and you've got women jumping up in here and there, the Corinthian non-Christian is going to think this is just like the pagan temple. And Paul said, no, look, the whole purpose of the gift of tongues is to communicate the gospel. If you use it in the church, one person speaks it at a time. That's a real language. Nobody else understands that language because they don't understand the language that, that that person is speaking because they don't speak it because it was to preach the gospel to people that didn't speak it. So one at a time, only two or three have an interpreter and don't let your women be jumping up because the, the people that don't understand the language are going to think that this is like the pagan temple. So that was there. I promised you that I would look at the first four verses of 1 Corinthians and then we go back and we're going to go right back to our finishing up with the reception of the Holy Spirit, which is really the most important part of our class, and I want to be sure we save adequate time for that. But since I promised 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 to 5 is only what we're going to look at. I do want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because if you're working with Pentecostals, this is really going to help you, based on what I said yesterday. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Notice, we do not seek gifts of the Spirit. God gives them. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are diversities of the gifts of the same Spirit. So it's the same Holy Spirit that gives the gifts, but there are what? Diversities of them. There are differences of the ministries of the same Lord. So the purpose of a gift is to lead you into a what? Uh, you missed it. The purpose of a gift is to lead you into a what? Ministry. Verse 6, New King James, there are diversities of activities. Gifts, ministries, and activities are all together. God gives you a gift to do a ministry so you can get out and get active for him in service in the world. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts. The purpose of spiritual gifts is not selfish exhibitionism. Every gift of the Spirit is to lead you to a ministry, to be actively involved with Jesus. Then it says, verse 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Wow. You understand that one text, and it's the answer to Pentecostalism. Who distributes the gifts? Who distributes the gifts? 
the Spirit. Do I seek the gift? God distributes it. And who does he distribute it? As he wills. So God distributes the gifts individually. Is everybody going to get the same gift? So if everybody's not going to get the same gift, then this idea that you have to speak in tongues or you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit is not from the Holy Spirit. It's from an unholy spirit, right? Because the Bible says, so when you start working with Pentecostals, start here and say, let's study the nature of the gifts. Now look, let's go, well, let your eye drop down to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to look, we see the body of Christ and there are different gifts in the body. And then he says, verse 29, he's talked about the gifts and he says, are all apostles... Are all prophets. Does everybody have the gift of prophecy? What, what is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29, when he says, are all prophets? Are they all prophets? No. Then he says, are they all teachers? What's the answer? Are all works miracles? What's the answer? No. Do all have gifts of healing? Why, don't, why aren't they all apostles? Why aren't they all teachers? Why aren't they all prophets? Why aren't they all working miracles? Why not? Because the church is the body of Christ and God is distributing the gifts in the body to build up the body and so the body can have ministry and activity. So if God is distributing the gifts, we need a variety of gifts in the body. Now he says then, he says, do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? What is the answer to the question? What's the answer to the question? No, all don't need to speak with, with languages. But you see, the Pentecostal would say, everybody speaks with what tongues, and that's an evidence of the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, no. Now, it's very interesting if you go back to verse 28. Here's what we call the hierarchy of gifts, where Paul lists the gifts in somewhat of an order of their importance. And he says, verse 28, God has appointed these in the church first apostles. In other words, divine leaders that have wide-seeing vision, that you know, leads God's church and God's people. The Moses-like character, the, the Jeremiah, the Isaiah, the, the great leaders that God's going to raise up. First apostles, second prophets to guide the church with vision. Third teachers that can teach the Word of God. After that, now notice, he lifts people first, apostles, prophets, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healing. What's the next one? Helps. Then administration. Then the variety of tongues. You hear a lot about, say, oh, the gift of tongues today. But the gift of helps is placed before the gift of tongues. I pray that as a pastor, God would give me a church filled with people with the gift of helps. Amen. Pastor, what do you want me to do? I want to do it. Whereas the carnal nature wants... The spectacular gift that I can use, praise God for me, humble people that want the gift of helps. What is Scripture saying? Scripture is saying that God Himself gives the gifts out. I open my heart and say, God, show me what gifts you have for me. Show me how I can serve in the body of Christ. I know, Lord that you give gifts. I'm standing before a group of young people and adults that have unusual gifts given by God. And no seminar on the Holy Spirit would be complete without my sharing with you that on your knees you're saying, God, what gifts have you given me? God, teach me. God, by your Holy Spirit, show me those gifts. You may have gifts that you have no clue that you have. Gifts that are not fully developed. 
You say, I could never give a Bible study. How do you know that God hasn't gifted you as a teacher? Those gifts don't come fully developed. Try it. If God's leading you to do something, do it. And you might find that God will, has given you gifts, and those gifts like the talents are buried in the soil of your heart. If God is leading you to work with children, jump into it and do it, and you may see gifts grow and blossom. If God is leading you to, to teach a Sabbath school class, jump in and do it. You may not think you're a teacher. If God's leading you as a young person to hold an evangelistic meeting, jump in and do it. Whatever you see God leading you. And if you get into it and it's not the thing for you, try something else. Because God has given you gifts. Because the Bible says... 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we read, what does the Bible say? Verse 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one. And you are in each one. Distributing to what? Each one, what? Severally as he will. God's given you gifts. The Holy Spirit will reveal them to you. As you do them, pray about it. Get involved in God's work. The gifts don't come fully developed. Do something for Jesus and you'll find. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So we've seen that, gifts, that, the, that the gift of tongues is the gift of real languages to communicate the gospel. We've seen it's one of many gifts. Not everybody gets that gift. We've seen from 1 Corinthians 14 that the gift of real languages was being abused in the Corinthian church. They would stand up and use it. We've seen 1 Corinthians 14 as one of Paul's problem churches. Now, we studied 1 Corinthians 14 verse by verse, and we left out the first five verses. We need to finish those up before we finish our class in a little different way. 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. That's you can proclaim God's message. Pursue love. Now, for he who speaks in a language, somebody asked me what about the word unknown tongue before? If you have the King James Version of the Bible, the word unknown before tongue is going to be in italics. Do you see it there? What is an italicized word in the Bible? It's a supplied word. So that's why I put, so it's not there, so you drop the word because it's not there. It's not anything that's unknown. It's not unknown to man and it's not unknown to God. It's simply, the word simply means language. So it says, he who speaks in a language does not speak to men but to God. What is that talking about? It's talking about in the context of Corinth when the person stood up and spoke a real language for selfish exhibitionism that nobody else could understand in the church, the person speaking understood and God understood. But no one around him in the church understood it because they didn't understand that language. Okay? That's what it's discussing. For he who speaks in a language does not speak to men, but to God. He understands it. For no one understands him. Exactly. Nobody understands him in the church. But they're saying, oh, he has the gift of tongues, the gift of languages. Oh, the Holy Spirit was bestowed upon him. So this person was attempting in that church to use that gift for his own purposes to exalt himself. And so it says, but nobody understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Yeah, it's mysteries to these people that are around him. But he who prophesies, that's proclaims, speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a language edifies himself. Sure, he knows what he's saying. God knows what he's saying. But, he who, but the church doesn't. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, languages, even more than you prophesied. 
For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with languages, unless he interprets that the church may receive. Why does Paul say, I wish you spoke with languages? Because then you'd be out preaching the gospel and God would give you the gift of real languages and could preach to people in that context that you had not learned. Then he says, verse 6, says what we went over yesterday. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with languages, what's going to profit you if I, unless you understand it? So, 1 Corinthians 14 is the abuse of the gift of tongues. Now, we need to go back finish up our class here. We have been talking about the latter rain. We've been talking about personal infilling of the Holy Spirit. We've come to the last few moments of our class and we've been looking at five criteria to be filled with the Holy Spirit and latter rain power. Criteria number one is what? Pleading with God, asking Him. Criteria number two, an undivided heart. Criteria number three, as mind saturated with God's word. You know, I love that statement, eighth volume of the testimonies, page 19. There is no limit. There is what? No limit. To the usefulness of the one who, putting self aside, makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon their heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. There is no limit to what God wants to do in your life. Amen. Never limit yourself because God will never limit you. There is no limit to the usefulness of the one who, putting self aside, makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon the heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. It doesn't say you live a life of perfection. The issue is an undivided heart. The issue is the desire in your life to please God. The issue is seeking God's will. The issue is a life wholly consecrated to God. The third criteria for the reception of the Holy Spirit is a mind saturated with God's Word. So we want to go there. We're looking at John chapter 6, verse 33. John 6, verse 33. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word which the Spirit has inspired and to let every part of our being be guided by the Word. John 6, verse 33. Verse 63. It is the Spirit, John 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. If you want life in your Christian experience, let the Word of God come into your life. Amen. Because the Word of God is not a dead word, it is a living word. Amen. You cannot separate the Holy Spirit from the Word. The Holy Spirit fills the mind through the Word. So you, it is not that the Holy Spirit's experience with the believer is a mystical experience that's kind of ethereal, and if I could just get a grasp on it, I'd understand it. No. As I pray and seek God with an undivided heart and open my mind to God, I open His Word and His Word saturates my mind. As His Word saturates my mind, He guides my life through that Word as I base my life on the principles of God's Word. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is filled with, be filled with the Word. Be aware of any approach to the Holy Spirit that is based on music and testimony and not the Word. It will be superficial at best and deceptive at worst. Music can help to set a tone to receive the Holy Spirit. But those people that are more interested 
in an emotional feeling after they've sung for 45 minutes rather and spend five minutes reading one devotional text. There is something about opening the word and allowing the Holy Spirit through the word to transform your character. Now, the word of God is different than any other word. Man's word is declarative. God's word is creative. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of sword and spirit and of the joints and marrows and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 12, Hebrews 4. For the word of God is what? Living and what? Powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and the word of God is powerful. So the word of God is alive. Do you remember David's prayer in Psalm 119 and verse 154? Psalm 119, verse 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your word. So God brings revival as we study his what? Word. Why? Because the word of God is living and it is what? Powerful. Powerful. How was this world created? Psalm, what? Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9. By the word of the God of the Lord were the what? Heavens made. He spoke and it was what? Done. He commanded and it stood what? Fast. The Bible does not say he spoke and it was in the process of being done for 100 million years. The Bible says, Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens what? Made. And the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, He spoke and it was what? Done. He commanded and it stood fast. God's word is so powerful that what he says is so, even if it were never so before, because when he says it, it becomes so. God's word is so powerful that he speaks and the audible word that comes out of his mouth becomes tangible matter. What God said is so, if it were never so before. What God said is, if it never was before. When God says, let the dry land appear and the word comes out of his mouth, his word creates that which he declares. Now this is a fundamental point about understanding the Bible. God's word is a creator. Now, my word is a declarative word. I can say, this is a podium. I can declare what is. God can say, this is a podium, and the word out of his mouth creates a podium. God can say, I can say, this is a sun, and point at it. God can say, this is a sun, and there was no sun, but the word out of his mouth is so powerful it creates the sun. Creation speaks of a God that is all-powerful. Evolution has no room for the all-powerful God. Now, here's why that's critically important to you and me. 
the same word that spoke worlds into existence at creation. The same word carries power in the written word today. God said at creation, let the sun shine and dispel the darkness. And in his word, he says, let my son of righteousness shine in the darkness of your heart and dispel. God created the fruit trees at his word and God creates the fruits of his spirit through his word. God created babbling brooks that refresh the land and God creates the rivers of his spirit in our heart to refresh our hearts. Now follow me very closely. Other books may be inspiring, but the Bible's inspired. Other books may declare some truth, but the Bible has creative power to transform our hearts. And just as God created the world with his power and his word, he recreates our hearts with them. Now here is a concept that for many years I did not understand. I will not pretend that I fully grasp it, but I want you to begin to probe it with me. When you accept any promise of God by faith, the promise contains within it the power of God to accomplish the promise you accept by faith. So when we read, for example, If any man or woman confess their sin, God is faithful and just to forgive the sin. That is not only a statement of legal declaration of what is in heaven, although it's that. It's not only a statement that God in heaven will cover your sins with his gracious blood and his righteousness, and he'll never bring it up to you again. That's not only that, but it's this. When I grasp that promise by faith, if anybody confess their sin, he'll forgive it. That creative pro- that promise carries with it the creative power to create within my mind a sense of peace, freedom from guilt, and forgiveness. So every promise is a creative promise that I grasp by faith that creates divine reality within me. And the divine reality is I'm no longer guilty. The divine reality is I'm no longer condemned. But it's not only something I believe, it's a living reality that changes my brain cells. So when I'm struggling with some sin in my life and I read in Philippians 4, verse verse 13, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Accepting that promise by faith, internalizing it in the mind, because this is not a dead word, but a living word. It's like planting a seed in the soil of the mind that the Holy Spirit takes and transforms the brain cells and enables me to develop new, 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 new neurological pathways in the brain, new synapses in the brain through the word of God, and those old sins are dispelled because there's a recreation taking place. Every time I get up and preach, there's a, and every time you preach, every time you share the word of God with somebody else, creation is taking place all over again. God is recreating hearts. God is recreating minds. His word, the spoken word, Ellen White has a marvelous statement in education. I think it's page 263 where she says, the power that brought the worlds into existence is in the word of God. Every promise accepted by the will brings with it the power of the infinite one. This is wonderful. Every time I open the Bible, 
I say, Will, I say, God, recreate in my heart, my mind. Lord, for, for a long time, you know, your mind may be going in one direction. You saturated it with those TV programs. You saturated it with that pornography. You saturated it with that drug, that alcohol, whatever you saturated it with. But when you open God's word, this is not some psychotherapy that's taking you back to the past. That's a regression therapy that's saying, what did you do? This is recreating new brain cells. This is recreating new pathways in the brain. This is the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, it's not tapping your feet and singing hallelujah. And, and, and No, it is opening the Word of the living God and filling your mind with that Word and letting God recreate in your heart and mind his very image. Amen. What are the steps we fill with the Holy Spirit? Number one, we're pleading that God will give us the Spirit. Number two, we're asking for a divide, undivided heart. We want to please him. Number three, we're saturating our mind with his word. Number four, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. We're looking there at Acts 3, verse 19. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing... What are the times of refreshing? The latter rain. Your Spirit of Prophecy reference on that is Early Writings, page 85. Early Writings, 85. Just write a little note if you want in your Bible or write a note to yourself to go back and read that. The times of refreshing of the latter rain. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. What's Peter saying? He's saying Jesus was preached before, but he's going to come again and repent so the time of refreshing can come. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. Is there going to be a restoration of all things? Is there? Is the earth going to be made new? Will there be a new heavens and a new earth? There'll be a restoration of Eden. But that's not going to come until the work of God is finished on earth. And that's not going to come until the latter rain falls. And that's not going to come until there's a repentance. Now, there's an interesting word in the original language, the Greek language in the New Testament. It's called metamorpho. And it's the word for repentance, and it means a change of mind toward. So what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind toward sin. The things that I once did, I no longer choose to do because my mind is changed toward those things. God takes away the desire to do them. There is a metamorphosis in my mind. Just like the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, my thought patterns and my thinking patterns are changed because I don't want to bring sorrow to the one that loves me by doing something that's contrary to his will. Wouldn't it be strange if a policeman is called to a home and a wife calls and says, my husband has been murdered. And the policeman finds the fingerprints of some man in that home and he, and he takes the body away, of course, and there's the funeral and the woman's all crying. And then a counselor goes to help the woman, and he sees that there's all 
dim lights in the home, and here's dancing music, and she's dancing with the murderer. I mean, something's wrong there, right? For a woman who's been married to dance with the murderer. I don't want to dance with the murderers of Jesus. You know, lust, pride, anger, bitterness, resentment. I say, Jesus, I don't want to break your heart by breaking your law. The greatest motivation for victory in your life is not the fear of hell or the reward of heaven. The reward of heaven is a powerful motivation. The fear of hell is also a motivation. Fear is not as powerful as reward, but fear is powerful. But neither fear of hell nor the reward of heaven is sufficient enough. Because if all you do is fear hell, sometime you're going to say, I'd rather have joy and that the so-called joy is going to overcome that fear. And if all you want is reward, you, the, the immediate reward is going to take you away. See, the fear of hell or the reward of heaven is not sufficient enough, but love is. Love is. The strongest motive in the universe is love. Amen. And if I know that the one that knows me best loves me most, and Christ will have an emptiness in his heart forever if I'm not saved. If I know that Christ longs for me to be in heaven, that he's brokenhearted, and that he longs for me to be with him, and if I'm not there, he'll miss me for eternity. If I know that my Lord, who died for me, who gave everything for me, wants me there more than anything else, and that he cares for me, and he's doing everything he can to save me, I can't turn my back on one that loves me so much. I can't walk away from one that wants me in heaven so much. I can't walk away from one that's doing so much for me. And if he shows me anything in my life that's not in harmony with his will, I want my heart to be in touch with him and in tune with him. So the Bible says, repent. On our knees, we're saying, God, I'm asking you to give me your spirit. God, give me an undivided heart. Lord, whatever you want me to do, I want to do that. Lord, please fill my mind with your word, saturate it there. And if there's something in my life not in harmony with your will, I repent. Now, what is the latter rain given for? What? Remember, we studied the early rain, but the latter rain comes when? At the end of time to complete the gospel commission. It's not by might, not by power, not by my spirit, says the Lord. The latter rain falls to empower our witness. Why would God give the latter rain if we weren't witnessing? If the latter rain comes to empower our witness, why would God give the latter rain if we were not involved in witness? You would not need to be empowered for something you are not doing. You receive the Spirit in latter rain power as you become actively involved in doing the thing that God has asked you to do. What did Jesus say about the early rain? Here we go, Acts chapter 1. What did Jesus say about the early rain? Acts 1. What was the early rain given for? The disciples had a mission before them. They had a task before them. That task was to take the gospel to the world. Acts chapter 1. We look there at verse 7 and 8. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his authority. And I say to you, 
The issue is not the times and seasons. It's not the times or seasons. God has not called us to study, to study end time charts with such specificity that we think we know the dates of this, that, and the next event. But he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what is the purpose of that power? You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, your city, in Judea, the neighboring province, in Samaria, the next province, and to the ends of the earth. God said to the disciples, the reason you pray, the reason you repent, the reason you seek me with an undivided heart, the reason you fill your mind with the word of God is one, and that is to preach the gospel to the world. The Holy Spirit will not be poured out on a church that has Laodicean complacency and no passion about winning the lost. The latter reign power of the Spirit comes to enable our witnessing, to lead us, to proclaim the gospel. And that day is coming. Seventh day Adventists around the world today as I travel, I see them. Adventists today are rising to their destiny. There are prayer groups around the world. You may hear a lot about the church's Laodicea and the church's complacent, but there is a serious group of people that are praying for the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are people, young people, all around the world. I meet them in Brazil. I meet them in Russia. I meet them in Africa. I meet them in Interim South America. There are adults. There are pastors that are leading their congregations. The Adventist church today is not all dead in Laodicean. Maybe your local church is, but that's not true. I see them around the world. There are young people. They're on their knees praying. They are seeking God. They're repenting of sin. They're filling their minds with God's word. They're studying the Bible. And these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. Listen, this gives us hope and courage. Somebody said, aren't you rather pessimistic about the church? No, it's God's church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Liberalism is not going to prevail. God's word is. Criticism and ultra-conservatism that sees something wrong in everybody else, that's not going to prevail. God's word is. Secularism is not going to prevail. God's word is. God's church is going to triumph. We're on the winning side, not the losing side. The Bible says, Jesus said, I will build my church. The reason I'm staying with the church is because Jesus built it. Amen. It's not some man-made bureaucratic organization. Jesus said, I will build my what? Church. church. If he built it, I want to be part of it. What do you say? Amen. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. Well, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against this church. Here's a vision of the future. You want to be encouraged this first day of the new year. Here it is. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God that marked its opening. Pentecost is going to be repeated, right? The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former reign. This is Great Controversy, page 611. At the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter reign at its close. Servants of God. Are you a servant of God? Yes. What's going to happen? Servants of God with their faces lighted up. Why are they lighted up? They've been on their knees praying. They've been on their knees seeking God and shining with holy consecration. will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven by thousands of voices all over the world. The warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. Signs and wonders will follow the believers. This is coming 
but it's not coming until we take those five steps. On our knees, seeking God, asking for the Holy Spirit. Telling God that we want an undivided heart and do nothing that in any way displeases Him. Saturating our minds with His Word and asking God to fill every nerve and tissue and brain cell with His Word. On our knees repenting of any known sin and telling Jesus, I don't want to do anything that hurts you. And asking Him to give us a love for other people. The Holy Spirit is poured out on a generation that is a passion for the world. I want to be part of that generation, don't you? I got a few gray hairs here. I've been preaching 43 years, but I got a few good sermons left in me yet. I long, I long for the day that the Holy Spirit in latter rain power is poured out. The emphasis of our lives is to be filled with that spirit, to exalt Jesus, and to live for him and share his grace with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these young people. Lord, just now, in this final moment of our class, we seek you with all of our hearts. Oh, Father, we've spent just a few seconds opening our hearts to you. But this day, we want to spend some time quietly, alone, or with a friend or two, seeking you on this first day of the new year. Father, we want this convention to be saturated with prayer. We long, as Sabbath comes, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out here. We long for dramatic outpouring of the Spirit. Father, as we leave this place this weekend, these days are going to go so quickly. Send us home to organize prayer groups and Bible study groups in our churches. Send us home different men and women and young people than when we came. And may we be part of a final generation that receives your spirit and goes out to the world, empowered by your grace to share the last warning message of the remnant church with the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.